Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast, the weekly podcast where we talk about behavioral finance from the perspective of how you can help retail clients make better decisions with a specific focus on optimism bias and how the financial services industry makes people feel more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the author of the book, Bullshift, and I'm the host of the podcast. Welcome. My guest this week is Dr. Cheryl Hurst, and Cheryl speaks, writes, creates, and does a wide range of things with regard to her expertise in, ex- in equity and in diversity, inclusion, behavioral science, organizational psychology, and all of those sorts of really great uh, HR type things. She has a PhD in organizational behavior with a focus on the barriers to career progression. And she's also a trained actor and a budding comedian and a full-time entertainer. So she does a lot of other funky things too. Dr. Cheryl Hurst, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. you're a, you're a fun person and a, and a multivaried person. And I always like people that, that are able to draw from different distance because uh, I think there are a lot of things that can be, um, can be learned. And, and I like it when people can, can find ideas from one thread and tie them into another. I'd like to begin by having you talk about organizational behavior in general and maybe your research in particular, because a lot of people might not be familiar with organizational behavior. And don't be afraid to talk about uh, workplace and workplace decisions and, and HR decisions. Absolutely. So organizational behavior really quite broadly is the study of human behavior in organizational settings. So it's really you know a fancy way of talking about the way that we act at work. So behavioral science obviously looks at how you know the reasons behind our choices whereas then organizational psychology looks a bit more at how those decisions impact our behavior at work how they impact our careers so that's kind of where i got really interested was understanding how people make choices about their careers and why people make choices about their careers so organizational psychology and organizational behavior looks at kind of that intersection of human behavior and choices and our careers Um, and more and more now also you know organizational behavior is looking at how people interact with their environments. So a lot more about kind of hybrid working obviously has really changed the game for organizational behaviorists, kind of understanding how we interact with our workplace versus interact at our workplace when it's at home. Um, But my research has really looked at how people make career choices and then how people make choices that impact other people's careers. So that barriers to progression and promotion and that kind of thing. And it's funny because you always think, uh, you know, if it wasn't for Becky, I'd, I'd be the vice president by now or, or whatever. But a lot of people, you know, they don't think about the decisions that the bosses have to make. And they don't always necessarily want to be introspective about what they could be doing themselves. Which brings us, I think, to the topic of biases. We all have biases. Everyone's biased. And uh, frequently on this podcast, we talk about behavioral biases as it pertains to investing. But there are other biases that are just natural human biases that may or may not pertain to investing, although they may. And I'm wondering if you could share your greatest hits about the things that you think are the most relevant. 
So this would actually probably change depending on who I'm speaking to. But right now I'm, I'm really talking to a lot of graduates and IPs and young people about so industrial placements, kind of um, really young people who are kind of starting their first job. And the overconfidence of the future seems to be really present at the moment where they people seem to not think that like their choices now are going to affect them long term you know even small things like you know you should be investing in if you know investing in your pension earlier at you know when when you can for the next 10 years if you can and under not understanding that these choices now make a difference because they think oh i'll figure that out later that kind of overconfidence about the future and the one that i think you know and it sounds so cliche but confirmation bias you know that people are just trying to find information that suits their pre-existing beliefs. It just seems really rampant right now, I think, in how people are making choices about their careers. And those are the two that are so obvious, but kind of stand the test of time, I think. Since there are so many biases that uh, intersect so many different fields of endeavor, I, I'm wondering if maybe would, would you even dare to go so far as to talk about how confirmation bias and, and in-group favoritism and that sort of thing play out in, say, in politics. If, if we start looking at how misinformation takes hold and how groups heard and and sort of uh, collectively think as, as a like mind, even though they ought to be able to be more engaged in critical thought, does that play out in the workplace as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the biggest, the easiest way to kind of describe this to people and how it relates to workplaces is, is if you think of algorithms on social media. So social media, obviously, you know, I love when people say things like, oh, well, this is all over my YouTube or my Instagram or my TikTok. Those are algorithms. So they show you what you look at. So the more you look at those things, the more you're going to see them and the more they're going to be there. And the same is true for anything in organizations. So things like, and again, this always sounds a bit cliche, but things like negativity. So if you are around people who are really negative about the workplace and they're really unhappy, you're going to continue being really unhappy about the workplace and you're going to continue talking to those people and, and finding more things to pick apart about the things you hate about your job. Um, when in reality, and this is a struggle for, you know, organizational psychologists is, if people were to take a step back, they'd see actually there's some really good components of their work that they really enjoy. But that mentality, absolutely. And it's not just in how we experience our workplace, but even in the careers people choose. So they see that one person got to a certain position they want in this path. So then they try to do that exact same path instead of mm -hmm. thinking about their own skills and thinking about their own abilities and how they can get there. So it's all, it is all kind of, you know, that self-fulfilling um, those biases that feed in and that herd mentality is exactly, you know, true in organizations as well. Good. I'm wondering if we could double back to what you said a moment ago with regard to optimism and overconfidence. In the investing world, and one of the theses of, of Bullshift is that optimism bias is a real source of concern and optimism bias in the finance world is and, and anywhere is just people don't think that bad things are going to happen to them you know someone else will get divorced but i won't someone else will be in the car accident but but that doesn't happen to me and it's that sort of perhaps naive uh view of the world where despite evidence to the contrary because you know half the half the population half the adult population gets a divorce at some point in their life um they they still think well that that might be true but it's not true of me and I'm wondering as it pertains to people who embark on a career path and I think there are implicit if not explicit parallels to to investing what do people think about they think do they just always assume that they're going to get the promotion every three or four years and 
more responsibility and more income or, or what, what are the optimism elements of people coming into the workforce these days? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a bit of like kind of the overconfidence about the future, I guess, is exactly, you know, what I was saying or what you're saying about optimism bias. What I've noticed it is definitely organizational dependent. So I've done quite a lot of consultancy in various different organizations. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it depends on what the organization has kind of promised before is what I'm noticing. So people are kind of always assuming that because an organization has done something once, they'll do it again. So, you know, whether it's pay rises at, you know, inflation pay rises or bonuses, you know, Christmas bonuses, all that kind of stuff, the expectation that'll always happen. But then also seeing the idea that, um, and you know, I actually have a really good example for this. So a colleague recently, someone that I've been working with has been saying that they haven't been able to get a promotion. So they're, you know, but they, but they think they will, they're like, Oh, I know it's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. You know, I've been working really hard. I'm, I'm working a lot. You know, if they didn't hire me for a promotion, then it would be their loss. And so we've been working together to discuss how, you know, they could fix their CV and get a promotion. And then I asked how often, how many times they'd applied for a promotion. And the answer was zero. So for six months, they'd been complaining about not getting a promotion that they'd never applied for. That there was just seemed to be this this optimism that someone was going to go from above and say, hey, listen, you deserve a promotion. We're going to give it to you without any need of kind of doing that themselves. And I'm starting to see that more and more and that people are thinking that they're just going to get picked out of kind of a, a group of people. And while some organizations do that, a lot of them don't. And you actually have to put yourself forward. So I think that is definitely where it would tie in and that optimism that someone is going to notice your skill and that you don't have to lead the charge there. One of the things we talked about that relates to that is decision making. And in this case, it sounds like the example that you just used is a non-decision, you know, instead of deciding that you're going to pursue a promotion, uh, the, the person you're talking about sits back and, and waits for people to have the light bulb go off and then to be invited to, to what are there, are there other examples of things that you can perhaps point out where decision-making could be better and, or where people need to be more conscious of the fact that they even have a choice? Because one of the problems that I would surmise about the story you just told is that maybe it didn't even dawn on this person that he or she could be applying that they just worked thought that the way it worked was that if they worked really hard the people above him or her would recognize it and and everything would work out as opposed to moving things along and going after what you want that might be what might be called a non-decision decision the decision not to actively pursue any other thoughts on that yeah, absolutely. And the more that you're kind of asking questions, the more I'm realizing how how similar these concepts are to when we talk about finance as well, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, a, a good example of that. Oh, sorry. I'm... Sorry, John, I totally lost you. My computer just like zoned out a little, but it's back. I'm here. Um, did you want to ask your question again or do you want me to just jump right in? Uh, I can just jump you... right in. Uh, yeah, just, just pretend that, uh, you've already answered it and off we go. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm noticing actually a lot of the questions you're asking, the similarities between how I would talk about this and then how I would talk about finances as well. And like how I talked about finances with my friends, but I think one that's a really clear example is the thinking two jobs ahead. So I encourage people to think two jobs ahead, right? So if you want to, let's say be, you know, that the chief credit officer of a bank, let's say. So maybe that's four or five jobs ahead, depending on where you are in your career. So you want to be the chief credit officer, but all of the things that you're doing are more related to, you know, not the skills that require being, a, that are required of a chief credit officer. And I see that a lot where people will kind of continue on a trajectory 
without realizing that their end goal isn't actually related to where they are right now. And they just kind of think that eventually they'll, because they want it, they'll fall into that pattern. And I think, you know, very true with finances as well, that people have end goals, but then their current situation and their current choices, and they're not necessarily bad choices. You know, someone can pursue a career that's a great career that they really enjoy, but those choices aren't aligned with their ultimate end goal. And that kind of aligning those decision-making mechanisms and that decision-making is definitely something that that people, I think, need to, to work on. Thinking about how they might be able to get in, on the investing side uh, a higher return while maybe skimping on the regular savings program. And if you're not putting money aside on a regular basis, uh, even even with a higher return, the likelihood of it uh, um, coming to fruition is, is going to be a bit a bit less. What can be done to help people make better decisions? And I know one of the things we were talking about before we before we started recording was. Um, the notion of decision-making, having evidence behind it in a lot of people being blissfully oblivious of the evidence. Maybe you can talk about that. So I think the very first thing is for people to understand that decision-making is a science. I think a lot of people think that decision-making is just something that happens and that you just wake up and do and you just kind of make these decisions and big decisions or small decisions that there isn't a way to make more optimal choices. That would be the first thing is for people to understand that there is and I can go through some of kind of my favorite kind of mechanisms. But the other is also to recognize that mental energy is finite. So, you know, you're not making as good choices at night as you are in the morning. There's so much research to show that, right? That decision fatigue is very real and that the more choices you have to make all the time, the, the harder it is for you to make good choices, right? It's I always say it's why they have infomercials at night. It's why you eat worse at night is because you don't have that willpower, right? It's finite at night. Whereas in the morning, you're less likely to turn on the TV and buy something that you see or to eat junk food because you you just, you have more willpower, right? So that decision-making, when you have big decisions, it's good to have those conversations and to make those decisions when you're well-rested and in the morning. And then also to streamline some of your simple choices. So, you know, set out what you're going to wear the next day, the night before, kind of plan your meals for the week, you know, that kind of stuff, really simple. Um, but when it comes to the actual science of decision-making, one of my favorite things that people often don't think about is using and, so that kind of widen your options. So when you're thinking about, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? Recognize that you can do this and that, and that there are probably some avenues for you to widen your options and look at this and that. That's a really big one. And then the other one is to reality test your assumptions. So ask people who you disagree with about your choices. You know, if you, especially, you know, financial advice, your career mentor, whatever it is, if you don't like what they're saying, talk to somebody else, like get a second opinion on this kind of stuff and try to figure out why what you're trying to do might not work and then solve for that. It's it's great to have that kind of a sounding board because a lot of people like to hear that people don't resist their own ideas. And so when you have an idea that you think is great, instead of, um, testing it to say, well, where are the weak spots? What am I missing? A lot of people just like to run with it. And and uh, that can feel good, but it's not always the most optimal way to make decisions. It brings me, it, it brings to mind uh, a story that I tell in the book about a guy named Ignaz Semmelweis. Are you familiar with this guy? He was a uh, physician in, in uh, Austria in the 1800s. I read your book, so oh, I'm familiar yeah. with it through that, but not before, no. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Well, thanks. Um, uh, well, that's one of the things is that um, a lot of people don't like to be told that what they're doing is is inappropriate or, or demonstrably wrong based on evidence. 
And this guy Semmelweis, just so that the people listening at home can can follow along very quickly, was a was a physician who um, the the babies being born in, in this research hospital in Vienna were frequently dying, and the the mothers who were giving birth were frequently dying, and and nobody could figure out why because the control group, the people that were women that were giving birth at home with uh, midwives, were not dying. So why were they dying in the hospital and not not at home? And Semmelweis posited that uh, maybe it was because the the doctors themselves were transmitting something that would later be known as germs, but it was before germs had even been contemplated. And, and he proved it. He got them to sanitize their hands before giving birth, and the numbers went back to what they were uh, elsewhere. So he obviously showed with the control group that that was, in fact, the problem. And his fellow doctors pilloried him. They absolutely hated him. They put him into an insane, insane asylum because he had the audacity to demonstrate uh, scientifically with veracity that there was a, a better way of doing things, but unfortunately it contravened their worldview. And that that's true in finance, that's true in, in organizational behavior and in, in hiring decisions. A lot of people have a bias and every, in fact, everyone has a bias, but not everyone likes to admit to having biases. What do you, what would you recommend for being a way, be, being able to overcome bias? If, if you said, you know, my name is John, my name is Cheryl, and I'm biased. What would you then do to overcome whatever biases you uh, at least implicitly know you have? So that's really that's tricky because I think another example is unconscious bias training is one of those right. things that the only people who really believe in unconscious bias training are people who are selling unconscious bias training, right? If I wanted to make a quick buck, that's what I would sell. Um, it's, it's like a right. fat loss pill, right? If it worked, we would know right? It, it doesn't work. It's never worked. If you talk to any behavioral scientist, and I think when you break it down, people understand why it doesn't work, right? If you were to say, we have these unconscious biases that we've had from, you know, evolution and years of, of cognitive biases and mental shortcuts and ways that our brains try to trick us and make decisions for us. And you think that we're going to get rid of that with a one hour training session. Like when you break it down like that, it sounds ridiculous, right? Like nobody would really think that that's going to happen. Um, and so, and that, to your point, there's a lot of kind of researchers in my area who have said that and then get, you know, kind of blasted with, oh, how dare you say that? Like, we're all, we're just doing our best. And it's like, sure, but you're, you're paying a lot of money for something that's never going to work. So be aware of that. Um, so then in the research of actually, you know, what does help with biases? So I'm not a huge believer in trying to change human behavior. Um, people, like you said, people don't like it when you try. I'm a big big fan of system changes. So trying to actually reduce the amount of human interaction in our systems. So you see this in things like recruitment processes where they have, you know, you do a work sample test as opposed to having an interview, these kinds of things that kind of actually prevent human interaction in the process. Not always possible, but that's always kind of my first go-to. Um, there is some research as well that being aware of biases and talking about them often, and then the outcome of those biases can actually affect people positively. So even just, you know, in recruitment, especially saying things like, oh, I prefer to hire people that look like me and then saying, right, well, then what does that mean? And it means, well, then we're probably just going to have a lot of white women. And then we might not be getting the perspectives that are best for our customers. And then that might mean actually that we don't reflect our customers. And then we actually miss out on an entire, you know, base of people. And then our performance goes down and we're not making the right choices. And actually talking those out regularly can actually affect us positively. Um, but otherwise, I'm, I'm still a big fan of system changes as opposed to changing human behavior. All right. Well, let's talk about constructive and team uh, dynamics, constructive conflict, team dynamics. Uh, 
What types of teams would you say work together more effectively as a result of thinking of these things? So teams, I think in my experience and what kind of I think we've seen in, in large companies are people who, and I think this goes back to a lot of what we've already talked about, people who are really confident in saying what they do and don't know. I think that's really big. So team dynamics. And there's this idea of psychological safety, which has really been, I think, um, misinterpreted a lot in the media as to mean the same thing as a safe space, but it does mean something different, right? So psychological safety is this idea that you can say something and say your opinion and be wrong and still be accepted in it. And of course, have that be respected in kind of where you're, where you're working. And I think those times of those types of teams, the teams where people can speak up and say their opinions and disagree with each other and disagree with each other in really healthy ways, or, you know, have full on fights and have, you know, really uncomfortable conversations, but you know that you're going to walk out of that meeting and then the next meeting you're going to walk in and everything's going to be fine again. You know, those really like adult mature fights, like the ones, I think the ones you have with your siblings, right? You know, where you, you kind of, you can't stand them. And then the next day you're fine. Um, and you talk it out, of course, I think those are the, the, the best team dynamics are ones where people can all speak up and be, are, are okay to have conflict. Yeah, you you legitimately respect uh, alternative viewpoints without engaging in ad hominems and and uh, those sorts of attacks. Speaking of psychology, because you're a comedian, I'm wondering. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to tell a joke, but I'm also not going to embarrass you by telling a bad one of my own either. So that's that's good. But are there are there parallels uh, with with comedy in terms of group dynamics and and interrelation interpersonal skills and relating to other people? I and and it's fine if the answer is no. I'm just curious what 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 you might have discovered in, over the past little while. I think so. I think one of the reasons that I've been able to do more kind of entertaining, and I have some keynotes, and you know, generally the feedback from my keynotes is really informative, also really funny. And I think that's why um, I've kind of tried to be funnier. And I actually started doing comedy when I, I started doing acting when I was a kid, and then I've continued to do work now. And then I went back into comedy because I think it makes me better as a researcher, and it makes me better as a kind of overall. Um, speaker, because when you can get people to laugh about things that make them uncomfortable, they like you more and they trust you and they they remember the things you said, right? Like we know that about teaching and learning is that people remember things. So I think that's kind of the more psychological elements of it is that when people are laughing, they remember things and when they find it funny. And when it comes to things like this, you know, like especially the work that I do, which sometimes is about, you know, systemic discrimination and some really touchy subjects that I find people come in and they're just a bit boring or they're just a bit sad and it, they just kind of bum people out. And, you know, when I come in and I have these jokes about things and I talk about things quite bluntly, people have a bit of a laugh and they can connect and, and enjoy themselves. So I think there's that. There's also the behavioral science element in knowing what's going to make people laugh and the kind of knowing um how far you can push a room i've kind of learned and so you know i know we're both canadian but i live in the uk now and that's very different that kind of the cultural what's going to make people in the uk laugh versus what's going to make people in canada laugh um very cultural dynamics of, of people in groups so that's been really interesting excellent okay i think we're at the point where we're getting ready to wrap things up so i always like to end things with uh, two sessions uh, and the first is that's bullshit and that's bullshit is where i invite people like you cheryl to tell me what it is that you think uh, is wrong with the financial services industry. What do you think uh, is a bit of a sore spot that that could be improved upon? So I have to be very careful here because I am in the financial services. Um, but I do think, and this is conversations that I have with people quite often, and it's that I wish we had a better understanding of what people's options were other than buying a house. 
So I have no interest in buying a home right now. Um, I really like being flexible and that I can like, you know, we're going to move at the end of this month because I want to move and I enjoy moving around the city and I enjoy living in different parts of the world. And I don't want to, you know, when our dishwasher breaks, I want to be able to call the plumber for free because it's my landlord to come and do it. You know, I don't want to have to pay somebody. So I pay for that convenience. And I've been feeling so much pressure to buy a house and people saying, oh, when are you going to buy a house? Or you're, 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 you know, in your thirties, when are you going to buy a house? And me being able to comfortably say, actually, you know what? I have other investment options. I have other ways that I'm using my money. I have, you know, good savings. I have other plans. I just don't want to buy a house right now. And it seems to be that people feel that if they don't own property, then they're nobody. Whereas the reality is too, is that I can rent way better places than I could ever buy. I don't want to live on the outskirts of the world and, you know, live in a small, tiny house. And so I wish people kind of understood that, you know, you don't have to own property to be somebody and that you don't have to own property is the only way in which you can save and invest and understand money and understand finances. And it really bothers me. And I know it's because most most banks make a lot of money on their mortgages. So, you know, that's right. um, but I just wish the conversation was a bit different, because even in terms of accessibility, I couldn't buy a house in, in London. Right. I couldn't. I'm, you know, um, so the whole conversation, I think I find just really deflating, particularly for for younger generations. That then brings me, and by the way, that was a really uh, wonderful way of putting things. And I've had different people who in the past on this program have been in the real estate in industry. And so it's refreshing to, to see the unique counterpoint as opposed to, oh, real estate is great. So thank you for that. It brings me then to the second part, which is shift happens. If, if it was up to you and you could actually find a way to tangibly correct the problem that you've just identified. What would you do to actually get people to realize, hey, uh, they have an option. You don't have to buy. You can do it. How would you encourage people? How would you incentivize people to tangibly think about things differently so they could actually have better outcomes? I think I would encourage people to have more open conversations with their friends about money. Um, because I think one of the things that's missing in my, you know, the generation now that's trying to buy, so let's say people in their thirties and younger that are trying to buy houses who feel that they have to, because their parents did and because they think all their friends are. But then when I actually speak to my friends who own houses, you know, they either got a very large sum from their family members or they're really stressed out and they're, they're house rich and cash poor and they are unhappy and they, you know, and there's some people that are really happy and I'm not saying that I'm not, you know, my advice is not that you shouldn't buy a house, but just that you should have more open conversations with your friends about it. And I think if we all did that and started to have more conversations about like even how much money we're actually making and how much money we're saving. And, you know, I think if, if people knew that and talked to each other a bit more and then got financial input from people other than just, you know, very, you know, financial advisors or, you know, what they see on TikTok we'd have more open conversations. So, I, I mean, that's kind of my, always my approach to everything is that if we just talked about things more and more openly, we'd solve a lot of problems. And um, so I know that wouldn't necessarily solve the entire problems. I think as well, financial institutions are making a lot of progress in this. So I'm seeing this, you know, with, um, you're seeing it with robo-advisors and more and more big banks are opening robo-advisors or, you know, robo-accounts that are doing investment accounts, which at least are getting people to think, oh wait, should I be investing? You know, should I not have my money just sitting in my bank account? My bank's now saying I should be investing. Is that possible for me? I thought that was just what, you know, the super millionaires did. I didn't realize that was an option for me. So I think it is changing a little bit and I'm seeing that, but I wish, you know, more people just talked about it with their friends. 
Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I've, I've, I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, I found it insightful and refreshing. So thank you, Cheryl. It's been a real pleasure. And I want to wish you all the best in all your endeavors over in the UK. Thanks very much, John. I really enjoyed talking to you. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTM. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.